1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be interviewing Dr. Amanda Padani about her book today titled Weavers, Scribes, and Kings, A New History of the Ancient Near East. Um, It's just come out in 2022 from Oxford University Press. And this is a fascinating history. For one thing, it is a sweeping history of the ancient Near East, um, covering a lot of different places and people and time, and is organized in a really interesting way. And I don't want to give it away too much because I'm going to ask Amanda to tell us more about it. Um, But it gives us a very different insight, not just into literally what happened, this king in this place at this time, but what life was actually like. Um, And I was fascinated to find that some of it was actually quite recognisable in a lot of ways, and some of it was just completely bizarre. And it was not always the things that I expected it to be when I read it. So I'm really excited, Amanda, that you're here. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Miranda. Um, and obviously to ask you loads about your book. But before we get into the weeds too much on that, um, would you mind helping us take a step back and introducing yourself a little bit and explaining what brought you to write this book?
1: Yes. Um, well, I'm a professor emeritus at uh, California State Polytechnic University at Pomona. Um, I am an Assyriologist, which means you know I study the ancient Middle East. Uh, and I'm a specialist in the second millennium BCE in Syria and Mesopotamia. And I have done, I sort of have two hats. On the one hand, I do research into chronology and, um, and into a particular kingdom called Hana uh, in the middle Euphrates region. But I've also, ever since I sort of began in the field, really felt passionately that I want to make our field better known to a wider public because it is the most amazing field. Of course, everybody thinks that about their own research, but it really is. I mean, ancient Middle Eastern studies are are fascinating and it isn't very well known. You know, there's a lot of familiarity with ancient Egypt and ancient Greece ancient Rome in the Mediterranean region. um, But the ancient Middle East really hasn't got that same public profile. And so uh, my books are, uh, some of them um, monographs and some books for um, the general public. And this one, actually, I, I wrote it um, partly because I was invited to write a proposal. Uh, Oxford University Press g- got in touch with me. My editor, um, Stefan Branco, got in touch with me and said, would I be interested in writing a proposal for a big sweeping history of the ancient Middle East? And I, yes, of course, I was very interested. but. I wanted to do it in a different way that I've been thinking about for a long time, which is is something that you uh, mentioned, which is that there are so many kings to get through if you're going to cover 3000 years. I think one can just do kings and that would feel as though you've done all the political history perhaps, but there's so much more that we know. And so what I decided to do was to do the book from a perspective of micro histories. So um, I would, in each era, pick some people, and some of them would be kings, and some would be queens, and some would be, you know, the people you would expect. But some of them would be people that were just everyday people, and seeing the world that they lived in through their eyes, and um, and doing a series of micro histories of, of, you know, the the idea of looking at an individual and their circumstances, an individual who is not necessarily eminent, and expanding to look at their world through that little mini biography. And I uh, sent in the proposal and it was accepted. And and so that's how the book came to be. That's
0: quite a nice way for a book to come into being um, and very much makes sense uh, that kind of, it was this drive from you that structured it this way. I can't really imagine, I guess I'm trying to imagine an editor going, can you write a book like this? Right. I think you steeped in the expertise, the way that you are to, um, kind of figure out a way to wrangle with the massive amount of space and time and do something new with it. Um, and that kind
1: of... Right. Breaks... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just meaning to add that the other thing, of course, is, is that, um, and I, I meant to say this, is that the research, a lot of this research has been done. I mean, it's not that this entire massive book is all my own research, of course. There are so many scholars in the field doing all these fascinating little studies, you know, studies of particular... Um, phenomena and individuals and uh, institutions and they're writing them in scholarly journals and so the people in the field know about them but they haven't been made uh, more accessible and that was what I really want to do as well was to to reveal the scholarship that already exists so I just went when you were saying depth of, of my knowledge yes but the depth of the knowledge of the field in general is is huge
0: Mm. Well, and I think that's one of the functions that this book provides is giving kind of a way to put all these pieces together and a way to see how all the specialist knowledge um, can kind of tell us both specific pictures, but also broader ones. Um, And in fact, throughout this massive amount of time and space, you do show some consistent threads across all of that.
1: Um, Would you mind introducing us to some of them? Yes, absolutely. And I think this is something that is really striking, is that you have this enormous amount of time, 3000 years, you know, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. There's less time since this um, civilization declined. Um, that's a terrible way of putting it. Let me rephrase that. Um, because I don't think I agree with the, with the term civilization or the term decline. So let me, let me rephrase that. At the amount of time that has passed since, for example, the cuneiform writing system went out of use to the present, is less than the time that the cuneiform writing system was in use and that the urban culture of Mesopotamia was thriving. So it's an enormous amount of time. And yet throughout that, I really do think that someone, had had they traveled back from the 4th century BCE to the 3rd millennium BCE, they would, or even the 4th millennium BCE, they would have recognized that it was the same culture. And one of the reasons for that is this writing system, that they use the cuneiform writing system for those 3,000 years. And it was taught in a school system that was remarkably consistent. I mean, certainly things changed over time, but they still studied the Sumerian language thousands of years after Sumerian was no longer spoken. And Sumerian was the language in which the first uh, legible cuneiform texts were written. Um, So the writing system was very much a unifying feature across that era but there's a lot of other ones as well one is that they saw the family as a um, the most important social unit and and perhaps that's true in many many cultures of course but it was more important in some ways than social class it was more important than nationality who your family was, your relations with your family, and then the sort of wider model of how the family could be projected into um, other institutions. So the king as father of his people, the um, allied of the king being the brother, in quotation marks, of, of, of his ally, uh, the gods being organized in families. It was it was a very powerful model for behavior and a model in which everyone kind of understood their role. Um a third consistency is, and I could just go on and on, but I, I won't do all of them but but the gods stayed the same, and these are gods that probably were worshipped long, long, long before writing developed, and uh, we only know about them once they started writing about them, but these cosmic gods, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, god of fresh water, you know these were were gods who were absolutely believed in and were um Still worshipped by the time of Alexander, um, by the time of the the Hellenistic period, and that again gives a real consistency because the the temple stayed in the same places. Um, the the temple that I start the book with, the, one of the temples I start the book with, which is the temple of the god of the heavens An, in the city of Uruk, it was still in Uruk at the end of the book, and it was still in the same place, and it was still the temple to the god of the heavens. So that's an enormously Consistent um, feature of the culture, and there's there's many many more of them through the through the book as well. But I think those three in particular were um, were powerful um, features that kept the, this sort of consistent culture.
0: Mm. I definitely, um, I'm going to ask obviously about the cuneiform writing in a minute, um, but I'm glad you picked up on religion because I certainly did not realize it was that consistent. Um, And thinking about the time scale of it, I mean, we think the Catholic church is old, right? Like that's a really long time to have the same gods and the same temples and really does function as a consistency that I don't know if we would necessarily even realize we should be looking for, given that we don't have something like that. Um so I'm, I'm really pleased that you've sort of picked that up as uh, one of them to highlight um, and that kind of brings me to the other sort of question is aside from the consistent threads to sort of trace to a degree, um how exactly did you figure out where and where and when you'd end start and end the book how How do you put boundaries on a project like this?
1: Well, one of the boundaries uh, before I get to the chronological one was. Sort of physical on the ground, because the Middle East can be um, defined in many different ways, the ancient Middle East. And sometimes people include Egypt, and sometimes they include Israel, and uh, sometimes they include um, Arabia. And that would have been an absolutely enormous book. I mean, the book is big enough. <laughs> um, uh, but also, I don't read the languages of those regions. And I think they're quite well, especially Egypt and Israel, they're quite well um, treated in in other books and, and by other scholars. And what I realized was the thing that unites much of the Middle East was this use of the cuneiform writing system. And so I decided to bound the book by the areas that used cuneiform because they did form sort of a cultural unit in a way that Egypt wasn't a part of it came in sometimes but it wasn't a part of that cultural unit and I I think the same would be true of Israel as well Um, that they were speaking different languages but they also were writing in a different script and that I felt was a way of geographically sort of bounding the region I wanted to look at chronologically again going back to the cuneiform writing system I thought it made sense to start with the beginning of cuneiform and end when it was really no longer being used widely. If I had gone to the very, very end of the use of cuneiform, it, I would have been in, in sort of um, the Parthian period, which was very much later than I wanted to go. But that's when the very last person ever sort of wrote in it. By the 4th century BCE, it really wasn't being used widely. And I thought that Alexander's conquest made a good point to stop because at that point, most of the primary sources for the period aren't written in cuneiform, and that means that the culture was really changing, because once you can't read the texts, that uh, the sort of historical texts, there's, there's a break somehow, I think, that takes place there. It's not an immediate break. It's not as though Alexander sort of marched in and everything changed. Many things stayed the same, and I spoke with a number of colleagues who argued for going to a later period uh, with this book, but I think it just, for me, felt right to stop it when things really were beginning to change because of the writing system. Mm. That said, that said, I, I say I started in, in the beginning of the writing system. That would be 3200 BCE or so. I actually started 300 years earlier to kind of set the stage. Mm. So I, I dealt with uh, a period where they weren't yet writing in even proto cuneiform, which is the pre cuneiform script. But I just wanted to get the beginning of the city of Uruk, which is the major city in the middle of the fourth millennium BCE. I wanted to establish it in a chapter before I got into the, the right uh, beginnings of cuneiform.
0: Well, and in fact, that's what I want to ask about because we, you know, you've just explained to us sort of how impactful cuneiform was. Um, so, what was the impact like when it was first introduced and as it spread across Mesopotamia?
1: it's so interesting because i think people think that when writing is invented it must be invented to write profound things you know a, a lot of uh, my students would sort of assume that that you would ra- invent writing to write hymns and that kind of stuff and it wasn't um writing wasn't even invented initially as a way of communicating language it was an administrative tool um where they would keep track of numbers and commodities uh, in a way that actually doesn't even reflect what language is behind it. So you would have a sign for the number three, you know, uh, three dashes or whatever, three lines, and then a picture of a cow. You know, you can read that in any language. That's, that's not a, a, really a writing system at all. But once it did start developing into a, a system that reflected language, where it was both um, phonetic, so, syllabic, and, um, and also logographic, then then you start being able to write anything, you know, because you can write words out phonetically. But still, they used it for the most part for keeping track of stuff. It was it was very much for administration when it was first invented. But it, that has an impact because you're, in regards to your question, what does that make possible? Well, if you think about it, if you're going to be taxing people, um, there's absolutely no way anyone is going to be able to memorize who's paid what in taxes. You can memorize an epic poem, but you can't memorize hundreds and hundreds of lines of of cows and the person that they came from. Um, It made it possible to organize a a ration system, um, how to plan work teams for projects, all kinds of things that were uh, facilitated by the use of writing. But then, After a few hundred years of this, they started writing other kinds of texts. Oh, I should point out, throughout this whole time, once they'd invented the writing system, they'd also created a school system. Not for everybody, just for people who were going to become scribes, who were a relatively small number of the population, small percentage of the population. But they did need to go to school to learn how to do the writing system. And so the school texts from very early on were are found alongside the administrative texts. And school texts are mostly lists of nouns, just long, long, long lists of nouns that the, the scribes had to learn to write. And these are called lexical lists. And they're fascinating, you know, because they kind of give you a sense of the um, uh, the world in which they lived simply by knowing what they needed to name. And they were really conservative. They would use the same lists. For example, lists of professions. There's a very, very old list of professions that was studied by scribes in school long after most of those professions no longer existed or had different names, they would still study those old Sumerian words. So uh, that was uh, something that I think was uh, uh, part of the the impact was this shared writing system that was used really across the region uh, and the shared school system. But then they began to realize that you, you can do a couple more things that they, you can, Keep track of legal contracts with writing, and they were from the very beginning very interested in um, litigation and in judicial fairness uh, in this culture. And so they would start, and this is this is by maybe twenty nine hundred BCE. Begin to see uh, texts that are really contracts that uh, lay out someone having given something to someone else, or someone having purchased someone. For, from someone else or from a group of people and it's recorded and especially important is who the witnesses were um, because that was something that you could then call on those witnesses if this uh, transaction later went to court so contracts started to be written and that was a way of communicating in a way over time because a contract is setting in I was going to say setting in stone setting in clay in their case because they wrote on clay the um, the agreement that had been decided upon in such a way that you could take that physical agreement with you to court, maybe decades after it uh, had been first drawn up. And it still is evidence for what took place all that time ago. The other thing that uh, also begins around that same time is that kings figured out that with the writing system, and when they first began to be kings, again, around 2900, uh, that the writing system could be used for them to communicate but not really so much with their people, most of whom were illiterate, but with the gods. So a king, first the first royal inscriptions, and for a very long time, actually, most royal inscriptions, the the intended audience were the gods, the, the deities, gods and goddesses, who would be, um, uh, fortunately could read cuneiform, and uh, they understood the languages, and they would write these texts to them, in hopes that the gods would therefore recognize what the king had done for them. So if a king constructed a building, he would make sure in that building to include inscriptions, noting that it was him who built it and the god or goddess that he built it for in their honor. And uh, presumably hoping that that the uh, deities would recognize that and be kind to him. But also they began to uh, recognize that Future kings would also find these same inscriptions, some of which weren't even in public places. Sometimes they were built into walls, so they literally weren't visible from the outside. But in the bricks in the walls, there was this inscription saying that the king built this. And then sometimes they would ask future kings to please um, preserve their memory or or not to remove their name from it uh, or anyone who found this. document in future so they were communicating over time at that point as well just as they were with contracts and then again hundreds of years past um they realized that they could use uh, writing to communicate over space so you could send a letter you could write a letter it could be carried by someone to another place and it could be read verbatim to that person so that you aren't depending on a messenger to remember the message that they can actually speak your words when they get to the place that they to which the the letter was to be delivered, and um, and so all of these made a massive difference in the um, uh, in the culture in general. I mean, the spread of writing was really really important, and so by oh gosh, certainly by 2300 or so BCE, it was being used for all these purposes, letters, contracts, administrative texts, school texts, royal inscriptions, um, and literature began to be written as well, and hymns, and omens. And so they they become more and more, um, uh, they they realize more and more opportunities and uses for writing. But it, it was... a. 900-year process or so before all of the possible uses of writing came to into being. And even then, they didn't think of some things that we have. They didn't think of writing history the way we do. They didn't think of writing diaries. They didn't think of writing um, uh, sort of reflective essays or anything like that. That, for whatever reason, throughout the, the history of the culture, that was true. Hmm.
0: And when... They had thought of these many, many different um, things and it had spread in this way. Um, were there still kind of dominant things that kind of got written down more than other things? Or at that point, was it pretty, there were just loads going on?
1: Yes. No, all the way through the history of the ancient Middle East, administration is the most common use of writing. So if you see a cuneiform text in a museum, um, chances are. It's a list of some commodities. It, you know that's of what there's, there's something like five hundred thousand cuneiform texts that have been found, and I don't know the percentage, but a very large percentage of those are administrative. That that's what they used it for the most. But they also um, wrote down a lot of uh, school texts. The Almost all the literature that survives from Mesopotamia, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the the flood story, the the myths of Inanna and descent into the underworld, all of these sorts of things, they were almost all found in schools uh, because scribes learned to write them as part of their school training and hymns and so forth. And later they began to be collected in libraries, uh, for example, the very famous Library of Ashurbanipal, um, in the Neo-Assyrian period, but the uh, the school texts are fabulously useful to us as really giving us uh, a knowledge of their mythology, a lo- knowledge of their, um, many of their religious beliefs, because scribes had to write them down, <laughs> literally just sort of taking dictation or copying from a, a text so that they learned to, the the writing system. And um uh, I, I I mentioned throughout the book, just we are so indebted to these scribes because of the things they chose to write beyond the administration, beyond the things that uh, uh, they've sort of required to do as as part of, just part of the bureaucracy. One thing, though, I find really, really interesting uh, that were written in large numbers were contracts. And contracts tell us a great deal. My own research on the Kingdom of Hana that uh, I mentioned um, it's largely been based on contracts because that's what we have a lot of from that kingdom, a lot of in quotation marks. Compared to some of the other kingdoms, we have very few of them, but there's about a hundred perhaps, a um, hundred texts. Uh, no, it's a bit more than that, but, but not that many. But a lot of them are contracts, and a lot of them are contracts for the transfer of land or houses, you know, fields, orchards, that kind of thing. And they're really interesting because they – kind of have a little microcosm of their world in that contract. So if someone's selling a field to someone else, they will list the, the neighbours to the field and they will list um, the owner and the and the, uh, the buyer and they'll list what the person paid. And then there's the list of witnesses and the witnesses are all, t- you know, they often turn out to be related to the people who were the the buyer and the seller and the, the neighbours. And, and you can kind of reconstruct whole worlds through these contracts, which are wasn't why they were written, but, but they do um, have that. And the other very, very interesting, I think, corpus of, of documents are the letters, because that's the one place where people really kind of just are letting their hair down a bit. They will say what they're thinking in a letter in a way that they don't in some of the more considered things like um, royal inscriptions, and which they would have no reason to in a contract. But if you're writing a letter to a, um, uh, a you know, brother who hasn't sent you something that he'd said he was going to send you well you, you don't mince your words where is the shipment of whatever you said you were going to send and I really need it because so and so is waiting for me it's just you suddenly get this really interesting vision of who the people were and so letters are, are often uh, widely found as well
0: mm. and this is I think um one of the really cool things about structuring your book through the perspective of like actual people, um, because we get to hear those, you know, the angry person going, where is this? Um, or, "Ooh, this is really nice. I'd like more of it. Um, and one of the things that I certainly personally wasn't really expecting, maybe I hadn't even really thought about it, um, was, I guess I had made some sort of assumptions about kind of who the people were that would be doing the writing, certainly scribes. I'd certainly assumed that the scribes would be mostly men, And business people, again, would be mostly men. Uh, Kings, I mean, kind of by definition, that's a pretty gendered term in English with connotations that we have. Um, And yet throughout the book, and especially in the early uh, chronology, uh, there's a lot of really powerful women, whether it's politically, economically, religiously. Uh, To what extent did you try to kind of find women and put them into the book, you know, how, how did we how did you end up with kind of having such really, by the way, quite cool a lot of them, um, women prominently in a book that maybe is a part of history we don't think of there being those kinds of women?
1: I'm so glad you asked that because that is something that I felt really passionately about in writing this book. Not that I had to find the women, the women are all over the history of the ancient Middle East, but they just haven't had their moment in the sun I mean, you know, they haven't they haven't been um um I, that's not to say there aren't a lot of people writing about ancient Near Eastern women there certainly are, but for whatever reason in general books, one tends to get sidebars about women as if they are an add on and they aren't an add on at all These women are everywhere and um and I wanted them to be in this book, and I, and it was very very easy to include them because you really can't write it without them, especially as you say in the first uh, chapters in the early dynastic period, um, in the third millennium BCE, the the queens were very powerful. I mean, there were there were queens who, in fact, all the all the cities for which we have a lot of documentation, city states. The queens were ruling right alongside the kings. And in some cases, like in the kingdom of Lagash, the queen has her own palace. She has her own estate. She's the head of all of it. She's keeping up her own diplomatic relations with the neighboring kingdom. She was performing festivals. She had an enormous funeral. You know, these were, it's not that I'm exaggerating at all. This, these were powerful women. And in the case of Lagash, the woman that I focused on, Baran uh the queen, we know much more about her than we do about her husband, the King Lugalanda, just because we haven't, nobody has found his archive. We have her archive. We have this enormous archive of documents from her palace and his palace wasn't found. So presumably there would be equivalent documents in his palace, but but we don't have them. And so for that era, she is um, the person to to look at. And same thing with priestesses. The priestesses were very, very powerful women throughout Mesopotamian history and, and elsewhere in the Middle East as well because um, they were appointed as, if, if there was a, a male deity, often it was a high priestess who was the person who was really in charge of the temple. And those high priestesses were similar to the queens. They, they had uh, estates to run. They weren't just a figure of um, religious importance, but also of economic importance and political importance. And they would uh, have hundreds of people working in the temple and in the temple estates for them. We know this because their seals show up on on documents, for example, where they're mentioned in the documents. This is, uh, it's clear. So it wasn't hard to include the women. But what I wanted to do as well, besides the powerful women, who um, are very sort of clear and, and show up a lot, I was interested in looking at a lot of different professions. It's one reason why the book is called Weavers, Scribes, and Kings, is that one of my first thoughts of how to choose these micro-histories I was going to do was to try to get as many professions in the book as I could so that you'd get a sense of what it was like to be a brewer or what it would be like to have been you know, a, a weaver, of course. And there were a lot of those professions that were uh, female professions. Um, for example, uh, Weavers, as I mentioned, a lot of the weaving was done by women, as was the spinning, um, the dyeing, the embroidery work. The the textiles were absolutely central to the Mesopotamian economy because that was their main natural resource was wool. Uh, They didn't have building stone. They didn't have mineral ores. They didn't have metal ores. They they really didn't have timber. The kinds of things that, that the regions around them were exporting were not available in the Mesopotamian river valley. But they had a lot of sheep and they had um, a history of making extraordinary textiles, which don't survive, unfortunately, so we can't see what they were like. But they were sought out by the people of the regions around. And the makers of these textiles were largely women. And that puts them sort of the, at the center of the, the economy. But there were other, so many other professions uh, Perfume makers, there were female administrators, there were musicians, wet nurses. Uh, We have instances of uh, women farming, many instances, of course, where farmers were male and female, Um, prophets, uh, maids, um, uh, people in, uh, there were even, as you mentioned, there were female scribes as well. So many, many different professions. One could choose a woman because either that was the only, you know, most of the people doing that profession were women, or because um, there were women in that profession and, and one could choose one of them just as one could choose a man. So for example, when I have the chapter on uh, the last chapter where we look at beer and the making of beer and innkeepers and um, uh, um, trade in, in beer, uh, two of the women, two of the people involved in that who I did the micro histories on were women and that they lent themselves to it because they have they're reflected in the archives. So it was, uh, I, I included them on purpose, not because I wanted to right a wrong, well, maybe I, partly that, not, not a wrong, but just, just to make it clear that there was, there's a whole side of history that needs to be told. But just because there's, it doesn't take a lot of effort to find them. There are women everywhere. One problem is that they didn't tend to be as many, there weren't as many female scribes as male scribes. So one often doesn't get the woman's own voice. One often gets uh, the male scribe writing about women or scribes. But sometimes you do get female voices because they are quoted in some cases. And especially when they wrote letters, perhaps they dictated them to male scribes, perhaps to female scribes. There's no way to know the gender of the the scribe who wrote the, the letter, but... If it's a letter written by a woman, it's dictated in her voice. And so those, in those cases, we do actually get the woman's voice coming through. That said, there are plenty of men in this book as well. This is a book that is not... Um, in fact, I was trying for a 50-50 a little bit, and I didn't get there. There are more men than there are women. But but there's um, there's, there's a lot of women in the book, yes.
0: No, they're, they're in the book and they have really interesting lives that either because we haven't found the archives yet, as you said, um, or because the society assigned kind of men and women different roles. And so there are certain parts of society that if they were deemed female, if you didn't include them, we just wouldn't know about those bits of society in the book. Um, That's true. So it illuminates a lot of things. So thank you for doing there,
1: it. there are some surprises, um, like when I had my section on uh, brickmakers, um, I was doing the research into the secondary literature, you know, what, what people had written about brickmakers. And I discovered that there's there's a whole um, set of texts in which a lot of the, the people carrying the bricks, the brick haulers, were women. That's just complete shock. And their uh, their supervisors were also women. And that was in the 21st century BCE. And so who knows? I mean, we may there may be more interesting discoveries to find in the future.
0: Well, so I wanted to... Ask another kind of question of a a thing, I guess this kind of comes from something I hadn't thought of, then read the book and went, huh, okay, I guess I'm kind of surprised by that, Um, which is that so far we've been talking, on the one hand, acknowledging the time and space and just how massive it was, especially in this context, but we've also been talking about kind of a lot of unifying elements, a lot of similar threads, a lot of the spread of the language being relatively, you know, people from very different places still being able to communicate. Um, and yet we don't have empires for quite a while in this time period. We don't have sort of political or economic unification in the way that today we look at and go, aha, yes, that is a large country, but it can be thought of as one entity. Um why and but of course we do have some pretty famous ancient Mesopotamian empires. Eventually, uh, so kind of why don't we for a while? What what were the kind of challenges or incentives to unify versus not?
1: That's a really good question. I think initially, obviously, until an empire was invented, um, it wasn't something that anyone was aspiring to, and so uh, for the first so. Six hundred years or so after kingship developed, there were city-states uh, throughout this region, and each one had its own king, and they would sometimes form alliances and they would sometimes go to war against one another. Um, but they hadn't come up with the idea of a large entity, and perhaps that sort of makes sense. I mean, an empire is an odd thing to think of if you haven't ever had one. you know, I mean we we have such a sort of sense of what an empire is from in hindsight but the amount of land you could reasonably control uh when you can only communicate on foot or by boat but you know um isn't that big you know if you're a king it's it's a pretty crazy idea that you're going to rule hundreds of miles you know, thousands of square miles of, of territory that um you can't get to easily. <laughs> so, so I think that in a way, it's hindsight that makes us think, I wonder why they didn't that, do that. But the first um, empire builder is often thought of to be uh, Sargon, Sargon of Akkad. And he did um, claim to rule from the Mediterranean to the Gulf, although probably wasn't actually completely successful at doing so, but but that was his claim. And then once he'd set that as a goal, you know, sort of in, in people's minds, in King's minds, that became something that one wanted to attain, one wanted to be able to control uh, what they eventually called the four quarters of the universe. Uh, but they just weren't very successful at it. it. It wasn't something that was easy to do, because if you think of regions that are easy to unify, one that comes to mind easy, sort of easy to unify, one that comes to mind would be Egypt, but Egypt has one river and it has lots of natural boundaries around it, has deserts on both sides, uh, has the Mediterranean in the north and the um, uh, the cataracts in the south. So it sort of is a very clear geographic unit. Mesopotamia really isn't. It's got two rivers running through it. It doesn't have particularly clear boundaries in that it, there were immigrants coming in throughout history. It was a, a very... Um, Uh, attractive area to live because of the fertility of the fields and the the wealth of the of the land and so one sees waves of immigrants coming throughout Mesopotamian history and many many different languages being spoken and so I think it makes it perhaps harder to unify for that reason so that kings who had this goal of ruling perhaps a larger area um, were faced with less of a a clear sort of boundary about what, what was this region that they wanted to control than, than was true in Egypt. Also the mountains that surround uh, the Northern and Eastern sides of, of Mesopotamia were exceedingly hard to conquer because mountainous regions just are, but it, they were also home to peoples who when they saw a moment of weakness in an empire, they tended to stream down and, you know, and, and fight. And so um That's an overgeneralization, but a lot of the the ends of empires were um, speeded up, as you might say, by, by invasions from the east, from the mountains. But the other thing, too, is if you just think about this period, how hard it must have been to run an empire. And I think when we talk about, well, why did an empire fall? I'm often struck by how did they start in the first place? How did they survive at all in the first place when they especially in the first couple of thousand years of, of um, urban culture in this region, they really didn't have a way to communicate that didn't take weeks if you were going to go from the one end of the empire to the other. So a rebellion that, that broke out, say, in Syria, if the, if the kingdom was ruled from, from Babylonia in the south, when would the King find out about this rebellion? It would have been underway for for weeks, if not months, by the time the king found out, at which point, how is he going to gather the troops to go and put down the rebellion and to to prepare them all? I mean, it just it's such a counterintuitive idea, you know in in an ancient world with the technology they had and the communications that they had, to even consider building an empire. But of course, once the really successful empires uh, began, the neo-Assyrian one in particular, they had developed all kinds of mechanisms for overcoming this. They had a standing army, they had garrisons uh, positioned around the empire, they had ways of provisioning the troops, they had um, roads that facilitated faster communication, they had domesticated horses uh, that they could ride uh, much faster than previous donkeys, for example. Uh, So over time, empires became more possible. But I think it was rarely unified before that just because of the logistical problems of doing so. And the fact that they tended to, if they had a loyalty, it wasn't to any sort of abstract idea of Mesopotamia. It took the Greeks to come up with a name for the region. Mesopotamia is a Greek term. The Mesopotamians themselves didn't really have a name for it. Um, They had the name for their local city state. And after a while they had a name for their local region. Sumer, Akkad, in the beginning, and then um, and later, you know, regions, uh, um, Babylonia, Assyria. You know, they they had a sense of these kingdoms, but a sense of the amount of land that Sargon had conquered, it it just didn't even have a name. So, one's loyalty tended to be fairly local, as I mentioned. You had loyalty to your family, but you were also aware that you lived in a particular city or in a particular city state if you lived outside of the city, but Creating creating um, any sort of sense of nationality, I don't think was something that uh, really struck them at the time as being uh, an issue. And in fact, Paul Collins has written a, an interesting book called The Sumerians, in which he makes the case that the Sumerians really weren't even aware that they were Sumerians, that that is our term for them, our sort of sense of them as the people who spoke Sumerian being a people. Was something that is a modern concept, not one that they would themselves would have recognized. And I think that that's a good point in terms of this sense of of why it was really unified. I think that's us looking back and saying, well, shouldn't it have been? Because it was later. But I don't think in the early period that was even something that was um, that made a lot of sense. That the empires of Sargon, the empire of Hammurabi, for example, the empire between them, um, sort of an empire of the third dynasty of Ur. Those were kind of anomalies in the in the history of the region.
0: Mm. This is similar to my next question, this idea of kind of things that we expect now or think now, maybe not actually translating um, once you look at it properly, as you've done. Um, and the next one I want to ask about is, uh, as you just mentioned, Hammurabi. Um, he is very consistently remembered in a particular way in terms of empire in terms of law codes um but you argue in the book that he might be surprised if he knew that that's what we thought of when we heard his name
1: why yes i think the thing he would be most surprised about is how big of a name he has you know hammurabi almost everybody's heard of hammurabi and he really wasn't a big name for most of his life he uh came to the throne in 1792 BC. And for decades, he was just a minor king. He was, there were a a number of kingdoms in Mesopotamia. They, there's a famous text that that suggests there were perhaps about a dozen of them. um, uh, That I'm sorry, no, I I take that back, not a dozen of them, that each one of these kings had about a dozen vassal kings who who reported to him and that there were seven or eight, perhaps, of these kingdoms at the same time and Hammurabi was simply one of them. And there were more powerful kings than him when he first came to the throne. There was a king in the region of Upper Mesopotamia who had a a large kingdom, possibly defined as an empire, um, there was a king to the east in Elam who was much more powerful than him, and he sort of plugged along doing normal king-type things for for decades. So he was really quite elderly, presumably, at least by their standards, where most people died in their 40s at the latest. You know, they just their life expectancy was not very long. Kings tended to live a bit longer, but um, not, you know, having a, a reign as long as his of. You know, more than 40 years. That was remarkable. And it wasn't until really towards the end of his reign that he became an empire builder, uh, perhaps instigated by the fact that his there were a number of um, attacks on Mesopotamia from outside, especially by Elam. And then once they effectively uh, repulsed these this coalition of kings that he was working with, Hammurabi then somehow got this empire-building bug in him, and he he goes and he fights against a very, very old king who had been on the throne for 60 years, which is astonishing, named Rim-Sin, who ruled the kingdom of Larsa, and he conquered him. And then he starts sort of building this empire, but it was right at the end of his reign. It didn't, he didn't live to see it for very long. And only then, when he built the empire, did he put out his laws. And his laws were not... a. a, a revolutionary thing there had been law codes that had been promulgated by kings for at least 200 years before him and uh, this was just sort of a thing a king did was to put uh, put out laws his are particularly well known because he put them on a great big stone stele which was found and is now in the louvre museum so when he when it was discovered in 1902 it was a huge deal because at that point that was the first uh it's not really a code of laws, but it's always called a code. Um, the first code of law that was found in from the ancient world before the Bible. And so there was a lot of press about it, that this was sort of the predecessor to Moses and all this kind of thing, thinking that Hammurabi was the first to do it. Well, very soon they found he wasn't. He wasn't the first to put out laws, but his were particularly dramatic in terms of how they were presented on this stone stele. Um so that kind of gave him a big name right from the beginning of his being discovered in 1902, and he just kept that. And the more we discover that actually he wasn't as impressive of a conqueror as we thought, and his empire didn't last all that long, and it didn't certainly didn't keep its borders that he had initially um, created, and that his laws were, I mean, they were studied by later scribes. There are, are examples of copies of Hammurabi's laws. So they certainly were regarded as important by subsequent generations of scribes, but they weren't the first ones. Um, so yes, I think he's he's a fascinating king and we know a lot about him and, and he's a, an interesting person to study. But I, yeah, I do think he would be shocked at what a big name he is.
0: That, to be honest, made me chuckle when I read it. I thought that was quite amusing <laughs> to imagine this king sort of you know, one of those bad one of those futuristic films where he gets transported to the future and he walks around going, "Wait, what?"
1: Yes, right. me. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the kings were so full of themselves. I mean, no, that, that's that's rude, but but they certainly um, did. Every king thought that he was so important, and you know the. the because in their royal inscriptions, they all say so. But I think he must have been aware that that everybody, all the kings, are writing that kind of stuff. And, and why did he get this? I think he would be particularly surprised that it wasn't Rim Sin. And honestly, poor Rim Sin. There he is, sixty years on the throne, had a big, you know, important kingdom very few people outside my field have heard of remsen I think he would be the one transported into the present going, wait a minute, Hammurabi, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Well, in the interests of um, highlighting some of the people who are not as well known as Hammurabi, um, we have talked about how the book uh, has these micro histories throughout that really illuminate um, lots of different professions and kind of what life was like. Um, and you've already introduced us to kind of a few of these in particular. Uh, and so I am kind of going to Make you pick a favorite, or at least pick one to tell us about in particular. This is really just my excuse to have story time. So,
1: okay, could you please yes. pick
0: one and tell us a story?
1: Ah, uh, it's so hard to pick one. Um, and uh, um, I'm going to give you Bazetum because she is uh, she's a she was a, a musician. And I should, I should mention that a lot of this research was done by Nella Ziegler, um, who's a wonderful scholar, but uh, she, um, Bazatum was uh, a musician. She lived in the palace at the Kingdom of Mari, which was on the Euphrates, and we know about her because her name shows up in ration lists, actually, that's, that's where we, we sort of get her name, but we can reconstruct a great deal about her life and, and world because of the thousands of tablets that came from the palace at Mari. And Bazatum, she's a, a little girl. When she first shows up in the texts, uh, listed with what were called the small musicians. They were uh, women who presumably played the lyre. Uh, we don't know exactly what instrument, but that was the instrument that was most likely associated um, with the kind of work she was doing. And she had clearly a friend named Beltani. She Beltani and Bazatum show up together on these lists we know they were friends because later in life um, there was a moment where Beltani had to entrust something to someone and she entrusted it to her jewelry box to, to visit him. But the, um, we can see that they were musicians. We, we can see that they lived in the palace in a, a area that used to be translated as harem, but I don't think it's a good translation because... It's a little bit um, anachronistic. They lived in an area of the palace that was for women, and it was certainly locked at night. But it wasn't a place where they were sort of in any way um, condemned to kind of work and live in exile from the men. They, they were working among men. And music was just such a, an important feature of palace life at that time that there were dozens of women who were employed as musicians and other women who learned to play music as even though that was not, they weren't professional musicians, but she was a professional musician. And I won't give you her whole story, but but we find that both she and her friend, Beltani, after they got to adulthood, they got married. Um, Beltani actually married the king of Mari. She was one of his 12 queens. Uh, but Basatum married one of the officials and she became the second wife of a man who lived uh, to the north of Mari at a city called Terka, and I'm, I'm particularly fond of Terka because it's where my kingdom, my later kingdom of Hana, it's not my kingdom, the kingdom I study, um, was based there. And I've worked on the excavation there at one point. And um, so Bazatum moved north to the region of Terka with her husband, and she was um, put in charge of the uh, a whole group of weaving workshops. So she became a supervisor of the weavers. And at her husband's new estate, I like—I'd like to think she was still playing music. I don't know, um, but she was uh, living there at the time that that the palace at Mari uh, fell. And so, hopefully, I mean, I don't know about the end of her life because it's not—it's not preserved. But she had this really interesting life where she went from being a, a fairly minor court musician to being the wife of an important official, and as I say, the head of a, a, a weaving workshop. And this can all be traced through these documents that were found at Mari, many of which are administrative. Thank
0: you for telling us that wonderful story. Can
1: I give you just one more? Because Ooh. I feel like I've had a lot of elite people and I haven't talked about anyone. Is, do we have time? Can yes. I give you just a tiny story? Yes, back? more okay. stories. Uh, yes. So so another story. And this one uh, I reconstructed based on, on a, um, a, co- a court case. So there's a court case from 21st century BCE. Uh, it's a little one about a, uh, an enslaved man whose name was Lunana, and Lunana uh, was in court because. Uh, well, no, let me tell the story first, then I'll tell you how he get to court. So he was someone who saw an opportunity to escape when his uh, owner died, and we know that he managed to escape. And I, I was in, in putting his story together. I used all kinds of laws and contracts and letters and court cases, not specifically about Lunana, but about his world, so that I could see that I know he escaped to Anshan, because that is in this court case. So he went a very long way away, about a five-week journey on foot. He managed to get away from his home city of Uma, and uh, and clearly thought that he was was free, and apparently even managed to pretend to be dead. So he seems to have sent back word to Uma that he was dead, which he wasn't. Um, and then I was looking at, there was a, a, a whole co- a group of men who were called Fugitive Slave capt- uh, captors, And they were sent out to look for people just like Lunana. Uh, and we know about them from, from administrative texts. And again, he wasn't found by one of them. He was unfortunately uh, identified by someone in Anshan, where he'd escaped, as a fugitive slave. And he was brought back to Uma. And he was put into prison, presumably, because that's what happened to fugitive slaves. And so we could reconstruct what the prison's Were like, and there's a a wonderful hymn to a goddess named Nungal, which gives us an image of a prison in the 21st century BC. And then he goes to court, and that's how we get this court case. And so the court case describes how this son of his original owner um, made a claim to Lunana, and the uh, man who had captured him swore an oath. You know, and oaths were very much binding uh, in this period, and nobody swore an oath. Falsely, it was the, the gods were really, really powerful. You you wouldn't do that, and so he then gets a a reward, and poor Lunana ends up right where he was, working for the same family in the same position as a bowman. Uh, but this this little world gets one can really kind of understand the world, even of someone like Lunana, who I know would never have believed he would be remembered. You know, it's it's one of the really fun things about doing this work in these kinds of documents is to find these people who. Nobody has thought about them until their documents were found for maybe you know thirty five hundred years or, or, or three thousand years at least, and um, and in, in the case of Lunana, it's it's what three thousand one hundred years since uh, anyone perhaps pr- thought about Lunana, except for of course the people who who found his documents and published them. But to to kind of make sense of his world as a, as a slave of this period was just fascinating.
0: Mm. Thank you for adding that one in. Um, I definitely think it was worth, uh, it adds illumination um, to this picture and is a really interesting one in and of itself, uh, at least partially because of how you had to kind of piece everything together and find, you know, make it all make sense with what is there and what's not there. And this is similar uh, to kind of another thing I wanted to ask you about. We've been mainly focusing on textual sources Um, But you do talk in the book about some of the art, the visual art. Um, And again, as with the book overall, you're not just saying this was painted on this thing. This was carved into this rock. Um, You're thinking about, well, okay, who are the people behind it? What's actually happening here? What does this tell us? And I was particularly intrigued by the example you gave of the, I think it was carvings um, of the the sack of places, the the destruction, the battles. Uh, when we are looking specifically at the Syrian Empire, um, what you know, tell us about that. The, who who were these artists? Um, what were they portraying? What can we learn from kind of excavating what they did in a similar way that you piece together the textual sources?
1: Yes, these are wonderful. Um, the the relief sculptures by the Neo Assyrian artists in the first millennium BCE. They are just extraordinary. I mean, they are so detailed and so beautifully carved and uh, really, really amazing as works of art, but they're also very fascinating as primary sources for understanding the Assyrian empire building, as you mentioned because the kings, when they would write their annals, and in a way they were writing something resembling history when they would write annals in that they would say, you know, I fought here and I fought against this king and I conquered him and I took this city and so forth. So they, they were keeping track year by year, the kings were of where they were campaigning. But they tended not to mention much about what their troops did. You know, They was sort of, I did this and I did that. And, but when the artists came to represent on the walls of the palace, these same victories, and these must have been authorized by the king, of course. You know, in fact, we know they were. The king determined where, what was going to be on which wall, and so they, it wasn't that the king was that the artists were in some way putting things up there that the king didn't want. But what they show are the soldiers, and they show the the techniques of battle, and they show especially sieges. There were a lot of sieging of cities, besieging of cities going on, and so they show the battering rams and the uses of flaming torches and the ladders and the sapping of the, of the walls in ways that we could never have guessed from the texts alone. And so these sculptures really are showing us a whole battlefield um, um, scenario that is, is it, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? I mean, it is just so interesting to see because there's details of things like the bridles on the horses, there's details of the the way the chariots were constructed, just incredible, fascinating stuff. And one thing that I wanted to really point out is that they also show the people who are being fought against in a not entirely unsympathetic way. And this, I think, is really quite striking, because to read the texts, the people who were conquered were anonymous, they were just You know, numbers, this number of people I I transported from some city to another or deported or whatever. The the king would phrase it that way. But when the sculptors came to represent them, they show families. They show women holding babies. They show men and women with big packs on their heads of of their worldly possessions. There's an image of a woman sitting on a a cart with her two children, one of them sitting on her lap and apparently kissing her. Um, There's a woman an image of a woman giving some water to her child when the child is thirsty. So one sees these refugees, these deportees, as as real people in the sculptures. And I think that certainly it's still propaganda, you know, because the kings wanted to show how powerful they were and how they were able to conquer all these other people. But one really does get a sense of the humanity of the people who were conquered even though it's seen through the Assyrian eyes, even though it's seen through the authorized uh, eyes of the Assyrian sculptures, they're still still real people. And that was the experience much more of people in the Assyrian empire was to be one of those soldiers or to be one of those millions of people who were conquered. Um, It's more reflective of what the Assyrian empire would have been like to live in than what the king tells us it was. You know, the king's... His perspective there's only one king but there's millions of people who he was ruling and there's other evidence for the the neo-syrian sort of everyday people as well which i also go into but but i really like to look at those sculptures um, and think about also think about them as people and that's another aspect of it is the sculptors had to be trained we have a few letters for example from sculptors writing to the king in which uh, one in particular that I quote, where he's trying to get his image right and he's arguing with some of the other sculptors and he wants the King's authorization to show things a particular way, that one can see sort of just a glimpse of the, the activity behind it, uh, behind the creation of these sculptures.
0: Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it's a really interesting example for all those reasons. And I also think it gives our listener um, a very good taste of what the book is like, right? Examining that in a lot of different instances across time and space in really uh, fascinating and thought-provoking ways. Um, and before I ask my final question, uh, I am going to go slightly off script and um exercise my dictatorial prerogative as the interviewer to ask about one thing in the book that I found quite bizarre and very amusing to imagine this being some sort of fast and the furious film um what were substitute kings oh, and goodness. <laughs> how exactly did they
1: I don't want to say work
0: because I don't think they did what, what were substitute kings
1: it's so funny because my husband said, um, you should talk about the, 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 the gardener who became a king. Um, and it's funny you bring that up. But yes, substitute kings. So um, the substitute king was actually a, quite a sensible, if rather cruel phenomenon. They, As I mentioned, they absolutely believed in the gods. In uh, They also absolutely believed in omens and oracles. And one of the most scary ones was if there was an eclipse, whether a solar or a lunar eclipse, because it tended to mean that the king was going to die. And that was, of course, terrifying. And so if you have an eclipse and the king is going to die, well, what can you do to prevent that happening? And at some point, and it's probably actually in uh, the, the early second millennium BCE, they came up with this idea that the king could step down and another king could take his place. And that king could die, and then the omen had been fulfilled, and then the regular, you know, the the king who was supposed to be king, um, the, the real king, would re, would assume the throne again, and and it would be fine. The gods would have taken care of of dealing with the substitute king, and this did actually happen. We know of many occasions where it did happen, and where the substitute king was indeed killed, in order to. Um, to take the place of the real king. And by the Neo-Assyrian period, they were going to town with making sure the gods were convinced this was the real king. So he would have the appropriate throne, they would make statues of him. This is a, a, you know, a person, a gardener, whoever, who was taking the, the role of king for a set period of time, about three months, and at the end of which he was going to be killed. and. And that, and at that point, the king himself wouldn't even sign his name as king. We know that a king named Esarhaddon, during the time that there was a substitute king, he would sign his letters from the gardener, so that the the uh, or the farmer or whatever, but so that the, um, the gods wouldn't know it was him. <laughs> really trying to fool the gods, and the gods would really believe that the, the king on the throne was the real god, real king. Sorry, but there's a, there's one case very early on. That uh, this happened, that there was a substitute king. Um, uh, there was a king named Ira Emiti, and he appointed a substitute king whose name was Endelbani, who was indeed a gardener. And during the time that the substitute king was on the throne, um, amazingly, Ira Emiti died. The real king, even though he was in uh, in disguise. And at that point, Endlilbani just stayed on the throne. So this gardener, who had been made king just to sort of replace the king for a short period of time, and then and then be sacrificed for him, ended up being a very successful king of that kingdom. He was he was actually better known in the end uh, than was the king who he substituted for.
0: Okay, well, listeners, I think you can understand why I just really had to <laughs> ask that question. Um, because it doesn't just happen once; it's like an actual thing. Yes, yes,
1: absolutely. Fascinating. I know. I feel very bad for the poor kings who was who the, the substitute kings who were um, killed for the for that reason. Though it, it's not not a happy thing to have been. Certainly but I, not.
0: I, but it gives us a really good idea of just how seriously they took the gods.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Well, that
0: now does bring me on. Actually, I promise now to my last question, um, which is the book has just come out. Um, it's very exciting. People should read it. There's a lot of great stories and detail in it um, that we've not necessarily covered today. Um, But do you have your eye on something you might want to do next?
1: I do. um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but what I would really like to do is to do a book-length microhistory to to find probably a woman, um, without giving too much away, uh, who can be looked at in the same way but in real detail and perhaps not one of the obvious ones but mm-hmm. I, 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 so anyway that's that's where i'm sort of going but i don't have a book contract yet this is not something don't don't so uh, no no this, this isn't, is this look is a sneak
0: preview of an idea yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, we appreciate the sneak preview. And while you are off exploring it, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled Weavers, Scribes, and Kings A New History of the Ancient Near East, um, published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Amanda Padani, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Miranda, very much. Really enjoyed it.